what exactly is a shadow center? Are you sharing a parking lot with a Walmart? Are you literally next door? Can you be across the street? Can you kind of expand on that terminology? Yeah, so I mean, it is as specific as either directly connected to it. A lot of times we're uh, perpendicular. So, you know, if the Walmart's like, basically we're sideways next to it, we could be out front. And we also do have some that are directly across the street. Again, it mainly comes down to every market's a little different and it comes down to, are we the best center in that town? And there may be two centers that are both equally as good, but at the end of the day, it's it's we're not half mile down the road. Like we are at the center of that density of traffic and we are truly feeding off of the traffic that Walmart's getting. This is Country Club Conversations. I'm Raj Tut, founder and CEO of Storyboard Living. This show gives you actionable insights from the hard to reach top percentile in business and entrepreneurship. I think everyone deserves this type of access and I'm bringing it to you. Welcome to the club. Jordan, thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you're the president and partner of MRP Capital Group. Yes, sir. The world's largest Walmart shadow anchored retail center owner. In small towns. In small towns. Got it. So on your website, you wrote, uh, or someone wrote, America's largest. And then as I was thinking about it, I thought if, if you're America's largest, you've got to be the world's largest in your niche. That's a great point. (laughs) (laughs) So you might want to have your marketing department update that. (laughs) That's a great idea. (laughs) So uh, that is like such a narrow niche. I think it's like incredibly smart that you guys focus on one specific thing. You do it over and over and over again. But before we get into what you do today, can you give me some background on how you grew up and and maybe how you first were exposed to real estate? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in St. Peter's, Missouri which is 30 minutes west of downtown St. Louis, St. Charles County. And, uh, you know, grew up middle class, very uh, cookie cutter neighborhood. And, you know, it was an interesting childhood for sure. I had a pretty pretty normal childhood for the most part. But, uh, you know, I grew up with uh, parents. My dad was uh, dropped out of high school, but had a million different careers that he pursued and, um, you know, learned a lot from trying so many different things and always kind of being a ultimate optimist at pretty much any stage in his life, uh, especially growing up and always focused on, you know, this next big thing's going to hit and that sort of thing. And although most often it never did, uh, you know, I learned a lot from that experience too. And, uh, you know, I have an older sister, but she was gone. She's four years older, so she went to college when I became a freshman in high school. So like kind of felt like an only child in high school. You know, one of the most transformative uh, parts of my childhood was my parents sending me to private school, starting in middle school. So even though I still lived in St. Peter's until about junior years of high school, I drove all the way across the river and everything and went to a private school, which for me, the biggest impact of that was showing me a whole different perspective and leading into kind of uh, what even piqued my interest in real estate was my, most of my really good friends, some of their parents, most successful parents were all in real estate 
and no idea what that meant. And following up after, like, after high school and everything, I would always lean on those people to kind of be like, what part of real estate do you do and where should I be looking and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, it was basically as simple as that as, you know, I didn't know all the different routes you could take in real estate, but uh, just even that perspective of had I stayed in St. Peter's, you know, who knows what would have happened, but what I would have known was possible was probably a lot different than what I was able to gain from going to that uh, school. And so I think that was probably one of the most transformative sort of eye-opening experiences for me, even if I realized it then or not, was just that there's so much else out there that I hadn't been exposed to before. We don't have to name drop the school if you don't want to, but I uh, just looking at uh, your bio, I think the school is probably 30 minutes from where you grew up, give or take. Well, back then it was like 45. It was in my CDS. Okay. Uh, what is it called? What, and it was uh, Country Day School. Uh, and uh, back then, for people in St. Louis, before the page extension was built, I would have to take either two different highways all the way out there and typically it would take 45 minutes or so. So page extension was a huge help for me, <laughs> made it a lot faster. And tying it back into real estate, actually, uh, a handful of years ago, we bought a big property in a place called Lake St. Louis. And the big like light bulb moment for me whenever we went out and saw that property was I didn't realize that this page extension had continued to go all the way out to this road that connected right to where this big shopping center and the whole kind of uh, development was. And I was just like, for anybody that doesn't understand how gigantic this is, that now you can just take this highway all the way across the river, like this is going to change everything forever. So anyways, that's kind of a full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So uh, just going back to, you know, your first experiences in real estate or when you were exposed to it, I feel like it's a very common thread for folks who didn't grow up around, let's say, um, family members that were heavily involved in real estate. It's, you kind of had a vision of where you wanted to be one day, just didn't know how to get there. And it happened step by step. So my understanding is before you started to look at or got into the shadow-anchored retail centers, the Walmart shadow-anchored retail centers. You started with triple-net properties. Before the triple-nets, though, did you uh, have any experience in real estate or were you doing any deals on your own with partners or maybe working for a large company? Yeah, so, no, it's a, it's a great story, honestly. So I went to school at uh, Loyola Chicago. And one, that was a great experience for me just because I... I'm not a student student and Chicago was amazing for me because I was able to get internships and jobs and it felt like I went to school on the side. So I worked a lot of startups and a couple of real estate companies, but my first internship between my freshman and sophomore year of college, I actually came back to St. Louis that summer and I interned for Marcus and Millichap. For those who don't know, it's a large uh, investment sales company. So brokering the sales of uh, commercial real estate. And that was in 2010. And so that summer is where I met my now partner who had only been there a couple of years, but he found this niche in selling Dollar Generals during the Great Recession and doing it nationally. And so that summer, he was the only person that gave me work to do. The office was like 10% filled. So that really was my first hands-on experience and just what commercial real estate is. 
And then in college, there was, uh, I spent six months or so working as a commercial appraisal assistant. And I would spend all day basically working on like, here's what this guy bought it for. Here's what this person's buying it for and how much money did the buyer make. And so I very quickly was like, well, I want to work somewhere that buys real estate. And, you know, and in college and kind of figuring out what do I actually want to do and talking to all these different types of people, every broker kind of mentioned, you know, the end goal is to be able to start buying my own real estate. And whether that's 15, 20, 25 years from now. And, you know, and I explored a lot of those opportunities, but basically always came back to, well, if I want to buy real estate, I want to go work somewhere that buys real estate. And just the kind of the way my brain works is just a, it's a born entrepreneurial brain, whether I knew it at the time or not. But any corporation I actually interviewed for, I just, just did not have the feeling of like, this sounds like fun. And I kept in touch with Joe throughout college. Like, so when I was doing appraisals, I had access to CoStar, it's a big database and he was then already starting to buy single tenant Dollar Generals, not in brokerage anymore. And so I would export every single Dollar General owner and their contact information and comp from uh, CoStar when I was doing appraisals and sent it to him. And anyway, so we kept that communication and relationship. So anyways, towards the end of uh, my college career, I was I knew pretty certain that I wanted to work somewhere that bought real estate. And at the end of the day, the more corporate positions and companies that I had talked to or were interviewing with, I just kind of knew in my gut that it was a better opportunity for me to go somewhere where there was only two other people. It was two partners and me. And I already understood kind of the asset class. And it was just kind of like, this is what makes the most sense to me. I know that I'll be able to succeed. That was blind ignorance at the time. But anyways, jumped in. Head first, graduated on Saturday, and started on Monday. Wow, that's awesome. So were you a partner day one, or did you start off working for Joe? No, yeah, I was not a partner in the beginning. No, okay. I worked for Joe. And I think the only disagreement, like, shouldn't say disagreement, the only, like, real confrontation between he and I and our now very long relationship was originally when I started, the understanding was any dollar general that I found that we ended up buying, I would get a thousand dollars. And we did the first one and he gave me five hundred dollars. And I said, no, it's a thousand. And he's like, I don't think I would have given you a thousand dollars. And I said, well if it wasn't a thousand, I would have taken the job. Anyways, <laughs> so he gave me a thousand and we've been we've had a great relationship ever since. <laughs> I'm sure uh, in hindsight it seems like a silly argument, but at the time I, I bet that extra five hundred bucks meant the world to you. Yeah, he forgot about it in 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when you guys were buying the Dollar Generals, can you kind of speak on what the strategy was at the time? And also uh, the investment minimum, I believe, was 10 grand. Yeah. Correct. And what kind of total investment do you think you guys raised from LPs uh, throughout your Dollar General run? Throughout the Dollar General run, I mean, that's a good question, but it was probably, you know, over a four or five year span. $20 million. And today, do you know what the approximate uh, LP investment is that you've raised like through MRP? 
Yeah, I mean, in total, where it's about two hundred million, we have about one hundred and twenty-five at work right now. Wow, that's ten times over six, seven, eight years, somewhere around there. Yeah, and even when we started after Dollar Generals and doing the Walmart Shadows, where we still had ten thousand dollar minimums. I mean, there's a certain inflection points throughout that time, and even today, we're still like, how do we even do that? And as we approach the future, it's kind of like. You approach the future, it's, it's, of course, we can go get that done. And then afterwards, you're like, how in God's name did we do that? <laughs> can you speak to the strategy with the Dollar General? So it was buy, extend leases, perhaps? Or, yeah, or- I mean, that's as simple as it was. So without getting into too many of the nuances of the Dollar General kind of real estate history, but uh, we were buying kind of their their prototype before they had a new prototype, which kind of was in the early 2010s when they kind of really went full steam ahead with that. And so we were buying these properties were anywhere from $500,000 to 1.2 maybe. And, um, you know, Joe had really developed a relationship with Dollar General as well over those years. And so, but we were buying them one at a time syndications and we do the real thorough due diligence of, talking to the guy that's delivering the, you know, the milk or the chips or whatever. And how do deliveries at this store do compared to the other 10 that you do? And talking to the managers of the stores who are always so proud of, you know, where we've been the number one store in the region for X amount of years. And they show you their sales plaque in the back of the wall. But like that, that was truly our due diligence, which, you know, is a part of how we do due diligence today is, is a big thing is just, how can you truly do the market research in the small towns and specifically those really, really small towns. But at the end of the day, it was Dollar General was the kind of grocery store for the most part in the towns that we were investing in. And as long as we could get as much information as we could about how well that store did comparatively, we knew it was a good store. And then again, as our relationship grew with Dollar General, it was a lot faster to also kind of gauge what their plans were there and if we could get an extension. So we were typically buying things with two, three, four years left on the leases and we would extend the leases for 10-year leases and then we would, and, uh, you know, the simultaneously cap rates were compressing on Dollar General in, in general, no pun intended, but their credit was growing. They were growing 1,200 plus new stores a year. And obviously like during that kind of financial crisis time, there were a lot of eyes on how well Dollar General was doing. And so the benefit was we were getting great prices on the exit. The alternative was it was getting a lot harder to buy deals, especially with the model that we had and the returns that we uh, modeled out. And so that kind of process somewhat forced us to kind of start looking at different ways of growing the company and what we wanted to do next. But, uh, but no, yeah, by about 2014, we had sold the bulk of, that entire strategy, both through individual sales and then some portfolio sales at the end. I love the uh, in the weeds DD that you mentioned. I feel like when you're looking at small towns the way you guys do, you can't rely solely on the numbers the way you may in a larger market because a lot of the numbers don't exist or they're misleading. We operate in some small towns as well. And I, I truly believe to really understand the market, you need to be in the weeds and understanding it the way that you guys understood each dollar general you were buying. So 
visiting those towns to look at by Dollar Generals, um, is that how you started to look at the strip centers or the shopping centers that you focus on today? Because it was around that 14, 15 time period that you guys made the switch and became MRP, correct? Yeah, 2015 was both when we made the switch as a company and also bought our first Walmart Shadow Center. So, I mean, the, the, the true story is just we observed kind of not necessarily looking out for it, but as we would go to the really rural towns where Dollar General was, we would always pass through the larger small town, which was county seat, university town, regional hub for whatever reason, and there was always a Walmart and there was always one, two, three shopping centers adjacent in front of it that had basically, you know, primarily national credit tenants, discount retailers, services, and it was the same exact thing in every single one of those towns. And, you know, so when we kind of knew that we were done with Dollar General's, there's a couple of things in consideration in the sense of we wanted to build a company for that was scalable that ended up being able to pay us residually versus being transaction fee-based. We wanted to buy real estate, not leases. And we also wanted to invest in an asset class that was, what well, was one, scalable, but two, most importantly, going to be resilient in a downturn. You know, especially early in our careers, we got a lot of feedback about, oh, you haven't lived through a recession as a real estate operator. And valid points. At the same time, Joe and I both started our careers in the downturn, that great recession. And so much of our strategy today as a business, as our as a, a real estate strategy, all stems from what works during a downturn. We had the unique advantage of really learning small towns during that kind of crisis and that cycle. And, you know, secondly, trying to reduce risk as much as possible up front, right? And we didn't want to get stuck in a situation where you're in a recession and you're you're solely reliant on transactions to make money. And that was kind of the the thought in the beginning. And then we kind of just somehow at the same time started talking about Walmart shadows. You know, we'd see some on the market sometimes. So it all kind of just clicked at the same time as we kind of launched the company with this business strategy of building a foundation of assets that, again, will at scale pay us residually and do well in a downturn, have less volatility. And, you know, at the same time, we were so familiar with small towns and had that belief in that they are that kind of, they provide that level of consistency. And putting it all together, also, there's just this super simple concept of Walmart's the center of these communities. These shopping centers already exist. Walmart did the homework for us in the beginning, right, of why they're in that town, why the other tenants surrounding it are in that town. And basically, any property we buy on day one, unless something catastrophic happens, like, we're going to be okay. And then the whole kind of scale and strategy beyond that kind of evolved. But that was the, that was the impetus of it all. So Walmart does the DB on the front end. And then you're looking at stuff like, you know, perhaps whether it's a county seat or not, if it has some sort of large employer, a few other factors. But what exactly would you say are the most important factors you're looking at when you're just evaluating a market before you even look at a particular center? Yeah. So today we have it down to a science and it's a combination of a minimum amount of Walmart sales, a minimum amount of uh, 
foot traffic that we now have like through sources like Placer and that sort of thing, you know, has Walmart rebranded or is it in the queue to be rebranded? And basically all the factors to make sure that Walmart has a big enough draw, they're doing well enough. We only go next to Walmarts that are owned by Walmart. So there's less risk of them ever moving or, you know, just another party in the way that may add another level of risk. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, if Walmart's doing well, we know there's enough people going there to provide that sort of success for that store. And because of that, we know that the tenants that want to be next to Walmarts and small towns are going to want to go into our center. And, uh, you know, for anybody that is familiar with, you know, the more traditional way of like demographic research, it was always impossible to do it in rural towns, small towns, because you couldn't do the radius, the rings. So you couldn't do a 10 mile ring and say, all right, well, this is the population. And so it doesn't check the box in this market. We never even tried that when we started the Walmart Shadows, because it doesn't tell you what you need to know. We were able to early on get access to what I would call a version of Walmart sales. And it was as simple as basically if Walmart was doing enough sales, we didn't care if the town was 7,000 people or 20,000 people. We knew that there was enough people going there too, that it was bringing in that regional draw. And so again, like if you have all that, it's the same property in every single one of these markets we're going to. So it's almost the same underwriting and analysis for the tenants as well. When you're looking at that, are you kind of solving for two things, uh, reducing the risk you have of Walmart leaving, and then also ensuring that there's enough traffic and perhaps income or money flowing through that part of town to support your tenants? Yeah. And like, so a key part of that too is, is making sure that there's not too much grocery competition, right? So the simplest way of thinking about it is Walmart is, like I said, like the center of these towns and primarily it's grocery. That's where most people are doing all of their grocery shopping. And so what we liked about the asset class to begin with, with the shopping centers next door, was that they were all, one, complementary of, of the services needed by those um, consumers, complementary of, of Walmart, and also like it's going to be the highest trafficked area in that town. So we knew that we could always compete even with higher rents versus, you know, a C-class center down the street where, you could pay way less rent, but you're not going to have the same traffic, the same consistent draw that you're always going to get being next to the Walmart. And like, basically, I mean, that was, that was the most simple way of putting it. And I mean, there's some other factors too, right? So like, it's totally different, even if there's a Walmart, there's a town with two Walmarts, right? There's a lot of times there's a Walmart that's way up next to like huge power center developments and everything else. And there's a couple other big grocery stores. It's a totally different model. There might be 10 other strip centers. We want to be the number one strip center next to the most trafficked area. So next to that Walmart that is truly like where everybody's going. So that that way it takes another layer of essentially risk out of the picture because we're not competing with any or nearly as many other shopping centers for tenants and that sort of thing. And if somebody wants to come to town, they're always going to want to go to our center first. doesn't mean that the economics is going to work out for them or at the end of the day, we, it works out. But at the same time, we know that if they're coming and they're looking, they're going to first want to be in our center. You touched on it briefly, you know, saying your centers are 
next to Walmart. But what exactly is a shadow center? Are you sharing a parking lot with a Walmart? Are you literally next door? Can you be across the street? Can you kind of expand on that terminology? Yeah. So, I mean, it is as specific as either directly connected to it. A lot of times we're uh, perpendicular. So, you know, if the Walmart's like basically we're sideways next to it, we could be out front. And we also do have some that are directly across the street. Again, it mainly comes down to every market's a little different and it comes down to, are we the best center in that town? And there may be two centers that are both equally as good, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, we're not half mile down the road. Like we are at the center of that density of traffic and we are truly feeding off of the traffic that Walmart's getting. I would imagine, given the fact that you're across the country, 26 states, correct? 27. 27 states. Your deal flow is probably coming from multiple sources. But let's say if through a broker relationship, a deal came across your desk and it had checked all the boxes that we just talked about, how would you go about or what would your DD process or underwriting process look like if you say, hey, the market makes sense, the Walmart makes sense, now let's look at the property? Yeah, it's a great question. One of the unique things about having a niche like we do is that we can add value to properties that are 100% leased, 80% leased, completely vacant, everywhere in the middle. But it comes down to the factors that make that possible, right? So traditionally, like on average, our price per square foot of a property is about $120, $130 a foot on average. So that includes, you know, Properties we buy a lot of vacancy, 100% lease properties, kind of like that middle ground there. But um, a lot of it comes down to basically, is there value to create through leasing? Is there value to create through, you know, replacing existing tenants with what is market rate tenants today? What's the timeline for that? Obviously, price at the end of the day dictates your ability to create value. So, you know, we're not buying stuff that's 100% lease with high rents that, you know, as a low cap rate, we're really the only value you can create is through some uh, 10% rent bumps every five years. And your downside is you start losing tenants that you may not be able to replace that rent or it's going to cost a significant amount of TI. So, like, we avoid that kind of stuff. But um, at this point, we have it down doing this for so long. We have a pretty good gauge on what exactly the rent's this market can support what is the likelihood that we're going to be able to get tenants in our back pocket and they're you know quick enough. We're in a really unique time right now that allows us to be a lot more achievable in the sense of like, if we're looking at a 90% lease property, every, all of the boxes are checked, price makes sense, this, that, and the other. Historically, there's a lot of tenants that have been there since these things were built. And most of these were built in the, from 2000 to 2010, somewhere around there for the vast majority of them. And there's a lot of original tenants in there that, you know, are a little bit oversized. They've hit caps on certain triple net reimbursements years and years and years ago, and they pay low rents, but they've had options throughout this whole time. We're in a unique time now where most of those tenants are going to be out of options when their leases come up over the next few years. And so when we used to have to speculate the assumption that they're going to renew, now we can, with more confidence, make the assumption that they're going to leave or pay the market rent. 
and also know who's going to be able to backfill them. So a lot of times if there's a 4,000 square foot tenant that we'd like to replace, we know that we could split that space in half and which tenant's going to go in there and pay three times as much rent on, you know, the original rent the other tenant was paying. So going back to kind of like, how do we look at underwriting the actual property? It's all those things combined, but at the end of the day, it's just how can we add value to this property and what price do we need to buy it for, for that to be achievable? So we'll pay lower cap rates for properties that have a lot more vacancy, especially in markets where we know that we're going to be able to crush it to get those deals done. Also be really diligent on not overpaying for properties that have value to add, but maybe it's not as tangible in the beginning. You know, you can't access it that quickly. But we've, even that underwriting's gotten pretty quick and methodical. So now for the last few years, at least, every, every offer that we put in is as is. And, you know, most specifically for capital improvements. So like roof, parking lot, like we're not going back and retrading on those types of things. So we build that in upfront. Our properties basically have three different types of roofs, depending on where they are in the country, right? Same with parking lots. And we've done enough roof replacements and all that kind of stuff to kind of know how much it's going to cost. And so we get as much information as we can on those sort of things up front. But the big big part is that we build it in up front to make sure that, you know, we're not going to end up 60 days later having to ask for credit because nobody likes that process. And it also is a waste of everybody's time, right? So just over time from the really specific market criteria to the really specific ways that we need to be able to add value in the properties we're buying, how much it's going to cost to, you know, get those tenants in there to replace a roof if we need to. And, you know, always using, you know, not making any assumptions on cap rate compression or anything like that. If all of that works and you're not too conservative, but conservative, you know, then it's pretty easy to know if a deal is going to make sense or not. So I'm seeing a lot of similarities between what you guys do and what we do. We also don't retrade and we try to factor in exactly what our capex may look like before going under contract. And the reason for that on our end, and I'm sure it's similar for you, is aside from making people angry, it's also building that reputation so the deals come to you. I'm sure the brokers are going to send you a deal over the guy that's uh, or the guy or girl that's retrading, you know, every single deal they get under contract. And then the other piece that I found interesting that's similar to us is you mentioned buying at a quote low cap rate because you know what kind of value you can add we're the same way where the going in yield or or the as is yield isn't extremely important because based on our history our operational focus we know exactly how that property in our case apartment community is going to operate once we get our hands on it and do what we need to do do you have anything that you're looking at today to where it's like okay going in regardless of what we can do this has to look like you know, an X yield on our investment day one? Or is it more so by year one, we want to hit X, Y, and Z? It's more the former, you know, and traditionally throughout time and going from, again, we started even with Walmart Shadows as syndications, then we did a fund, then we did the private REIT. But um, everything that we've bought as, you know, cash flow to investors day one, the beauty of having more of a consolidated portfolio is that you can take on some more of those projects that are going to take 
time to really start cash flowing. So some with like a lot of vacancy and that sort of stuff and throw in some of those that may be at lower cap rates on the front. But high level outside of those extraordinary deals, it's the roots of it all still on a property by property basis, the fundamentals of lower risk. And even though I'm talking about these these properties that have tenants that are paying what I'm saying are below market rents and that sort of stuff. In a worst case scenario, if they stay or if they leave and we can only replace them with a similar rent, great, right? Like that's downside that is a lot more, you know, digestible than um, saying we have to hit this return. And if all these things don't go right, then we're not going to be able to do it. So like, that's a core of, of everything that we have, like, in the very beginning till today on the property-by-property property basis. It's that everything works day one, and it's as little risk as possible. Now we're able to really, with a track record and, and just how things are going now, obviously be able to create more value than even I thought we'd be able to do. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into that, but um, but at the end of the day, that's kind of the the first look is, What's the downside, obviously, and how do we minimize that downside as much as possible? The track record you mentioned is extremely impressive. 2.6 million square feet, 100 properties. From the first property to today, did you raise investor capital for each deal? Yes. And that was through, the you mentioned the fund and now the REIT, is that correct? Yeah, well, so we bought our first Walmart Shadow in 2015, and every one of those that we bought we're in syndications until we launched our fund in Q4 2020. So we did a lot of syndications before that. You know, a few of them had a few properties in them because the timing lined up the right way. But um, it was syndications. Then we did our fund, and you know, the fund was ended up being such a big pipeline in the beginning that we raised the money and closed it. We had a big portfolio that came together, right, kind of as the fund was launching. Same thing happened with the REIT. <laughs> and so, you know, to kind of put it in perspective, we were probably 30, maybe just less of 30 properties in the portfolio when we started the fund at the very end of 2020. And by June of 2022, so just over 18 months, we were at 100. And that was a, a wild time for sure. <laughs> And a lot of, you know, just how are you going to raise that money? How is it going to come together? A lot of scrambling at the final moments every step of the way. I still, to this day, we have never had more capital than pipeline. I hope one day that changes. But at the same time, I'd rather I'd rather be that way than the opposite. But, uh, you know, that's just part of that journey. Do you think you're going to see more deals coming your way in the coming months? Yeah, I mean, I can't time it. We're seeing a lot of unique deals right now that we hadn't been seeing. Some of them, I mean, a lot of them still don't make sense. And we've been really diligent on not even buying just stable deals, you know, that may be more stabilized, that take more time to like add value. We've been pretty, pretty much holding out for the right combination of value add and, and, you know, lower prices and higher cap rates. I mean, we've only bought, about three properties this year, which is very different than obviously the, the prior several years. 
and it hasn't been a complete switch yet. I mean, we've been selling properties. Part of our whole thing is we buy a lot of small deals. Like our average deal is about $4 million when we buy it at least. And so what we're seeing on the market right now is we've been selling assets, especially seasoned assets where we've maximized, you know, value creation, all that kind of stuff. And being able to sell those individually to what appears to me to be a wider buyer pool than I've seen in the asset class, but primarily it's, you know, individual investors, people in 1031s, where the price point makes sense and they're still paying, you know, cap rates at or below our projections. And so while that's still going on, we're taking advantage of that. But on the flip side, that's why we still haven't seen a kind of flip to a buyer's market completely in our asset class. But there is... I mean, we've been doing this so long. We know, we know some like all the portfolios and all the history there. So there's, we know when some debt's coming due. We know some things on the horizon that I think uh, we're we're working on getting in front of, making sure that we have the capital ready to deploy. And what I believe will be the next three years will be the best buying opportunities that we're going to have, both in scale and in pricing. Is that in three months, six months? I don't know exactly, but. Uh, I don't see rates going down significantly over the next couple of years. And so that just inherently is going to force a lot of people to most likely look at selling when their loans come due. You mentioned that the buyer pool is a little wider or it appears to be wider than when you guys were buying a lot of the assets that you own. Do you think that is in part due to the fact that you've professionalized the systems and operations for each property you brought in? perhaps better tenants or extended the lease terms. And now it's more palatable to a more hands-off owner versus you stacked a few different challenges to your acquisitions. It's small towns, it's deals that are perhaps mismanaged, deals that you know maybe have occupancy challenges. It, do you think that's what is attributed to the wider buyer pool when you go to exit these assets? Or is it just that these retail centers are becoming more and more popular amongst investors? I would equate it most to I think there's more people looking to invest in retail than there has been in a very long time. From an individual property standpoint, obviously us having a lot more national credit, most importantly national credit, that's going to be viable long term. So a lot more services, less soft goods, that sort of stuff, longer leases, that all helps, especially in the pricing that we're trying to get. But at the end of the day, you know, the wider buyer pool is not because it's as much as I would like to say we're there yet. It's not because we've professionalized it. It's it's that there's a lot more data, one, around small towns. That's one of the reasons why there's a lot more tenants looking at small towns. But it's easier to underwrite a small town. And I think it's just a lot more people are looking at retail right now. And a lot of these buyers are either familiar with the asset class or they live within you know, a hundred miles. And so they kind of, it's close enough and they get it and they can buy it. What I think is a low cap rate, but to them it's a high cap rate compared to buying inside of the, the larger metro that they're in. That makes sense. So you mentioned the tenants that are looking at small towns more than maybe previous years due to the, the data that's available. If you were to buy a 100% vacant retail center uh, that fits your strategy, if you don't want to give names, don't give names. But what types of tenants are you calling day one that you think will be a good fit? Yeah, absolutely. One subsector that we're going with a ton is uh, cell phone companies. T-Mobile, AT&T, some Verizon, but 
the demand and need for specifically 5G in rural America is gigantic. Those companies have been super focused on getting as much of that market share as possible. And a lot of it follows their infrastructure pipeline. So if they can get a new tower up, then they're going to make sure that there's a new store there. But so it's a perfect example of kind of still national credit. So we buy stuff with national credit, but we might replace it with different national credit. But this national credit is serving a need that's really important today and will continue to be important. They're paying market rents, as we describe them. And, you know, it's it's kind of how these strip centers, both in our town's neighborhood strip centers, one of, the, I think, the appeals of, of strip center, and one thing to really make clear, I think, is that when I say strip center, it's not, you know, a big junior box where you have 20,000 square foot box that was built for one tenant and a 15,000 for another and all these different, like, misshaped sort of um, shopping centers. It's traditionally, you know, 100, 120 feet of depth and very simple comparatively to split those spaces up, change, alter them, and evolve the tenant base alongside, you know, the needs of the consumer of that area. And so for us, it's always, what are those needs today? And what also is that tenant base look like that's going to do the same or better in a downturn or if or if they do worse is it significantly worse or is it it's just maybe a little bit worse so anyway so like a t-mobile at&t those types of guys that grow with a lot great clips you know financial services including like insurance financial advisors all those sort of things you know dollar tree is our largest tenant transparently we don't put them into a lot of new centers but they're a huge anchor of ours and the ones that we buy where they exist and you know, a unique story is, you know, uh, some tenants that are growing in small towns that I never would have anticipated or that we'd be doing as many deals as we are with is like, for example, like Five Below. And, you know, one of the really cool things about our experience with them specifically, and I think is a testament to also the evolving mindset of retailers is, one, their comfort in small towns, which grows every year as they see the performance, but also understanding that they need to reconfigure their spaces sometimes to fit in non-traditional uh, shopping centers like ours versus it's a lot easier for them to go and backfill a 10,000 square foot box that was occupied by somebody else. But like seeing their willingness to, again, like transform their footprint and see the opportunity in small towns um, that five years ago at a company like theirs would never really explore or even like put in that time, resources, and energy to even give it a try. Those types of tenants that are growing, that perform, and, you know, again, when you look five, ten years down the road, you see the strength and the ability for them to still be there versus some that we may have today that may not be down the road. So that, does that answer your question enough? <laughs> no, it does. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Do you entertain mom and pops though? Like you mentioned, yeah. the, the major retailers. Okay. Yeah, and so it, it it's a core part too, and both um, in that ones that we inherit and ones that we put in, and a lot of our more mom and pop local tenants are 
restaurants and we typically have one restaurant, one or two restaurants in every one of our centers. And, um, you know, sometimes they may have three locations in neighboring towns, but it goes back to really more of the combination of if we're putting one in, not just restaurants, it could be a nail salon. It could be a, just a local business. Um, it goes back to really, you know, really understanding their ability to operate the business, their historical performance, you know, is this their first location? Are they moving or is this their third location? And what is it going to take to make them successful, both on a initial package of whether it's TI, free rent, what rent they could pay and that sort of thing. And so it's, it's a healthy combination. You can't just do it with anybody, but at the same time, the ones that we feel confident about that also we feel fit the need of that center and that community. One of the benefits that we have of our experience and scale is we can help educate them on even the process of getting that store open, right? So a lot of times we'll take over doing the actual work rather than giving them TI because that's a whole endeavor that is really you know, overwhelming for a lot of people that may not be experienced in it and that sort of thing. And so we have the experience of knowing how to get that done in any small town across the country. And so those are really fun, rewarding uh, experience to, to be part of. We just made a video about a property we have in Logan, Ohio. It'll come out soon. And it highlights one of the tenants there who uh, called Hawk's Nest, but they make, you know, custom apparel for that whole county. So like the high schools, they also do like, prom and homecoming wear and all that sort of stuff. And they're a big highlight of that video because we also moved them from an existing space to a bigger space to help them out with that process. And, you know, it's been a good, great back and forth relationship. And they're such a staple of that community. It's not a business that I ever would think that we would go out to pursue by any means, but at the same time, like their integration with the fabric of that community is a perfect example of like the mom and pops that we like to work with and kind of, fit the bill across really what we're trying to accomplish. That's a great value add. I feel like a lot of small business owners just want to focus on what they do and the lease negotiation or the TI is an afterthought. So the fact that you guys can step in and help them out with it is tremendous. Uh, When you say we are negotiating a lease or we're helping them with the TI, is that MRP Capital Group or is that you and a third party management company? How do you handle the operations on site? Yeah, no, it's, and when I say we, it's, it's MRP. And so, Pretty much from the beginning of this strategy, we knew that we wanted to build the infrastructure internally. And primarily it's because, you know, the old saying of no one's going to, you know, give care as much as you're going to care. Also, at the same time, it's the efficiencies of it. And so in the very beginning, you know, we see this big picture of what scaling this asset class and consolidating a portfolio of this asset class, where those efficiencies can come from from, you know, the relationships with tenants and, you know, other third parties across the country to make things more efficient. But even from the beginning, it was like, take leasing, for example. We took that in-house really early. You know, one of our first properties, we were using a third-party broker. They lived in the major metro that's an hour and a half away. And this was one of the best Walmarts you could ever be next to. It was in Harrison, Arkansas. It's actually Walmart store number two. And uh, anyways, like, we had a 2,000 square foot vacancy and just we're getting no activity on it. It made no sense to us. So we eventually took that in-house and then all of a sudden you're getting five sign calls a week and it's just a perfect example of, you know, 
not to say that I would think any differently if I was the broker, but to go and drive an hour and a half, two hours to go show a 1,500 square foot space to a tenant. You have no idea if they're going to do it or not versus I have bigger listings locally. I get it, right? And that's kind of one of the reasons why we took it in-house is because one, we care. And to us, a 1,500 square foot vacancy is just as important as a 10,000 square foot vacancy across our portfolio. And then again, the thought process long-term was we're going to have better relationships with the national credit tenants the bigger we get versus that same broker and maybe his company in that town. And then with the local or regional tenants, it's we have guys that are just boots on the ground, cold calling every day too. And so that's just an example of why we would take it in-house, but we do property management in-house, we do leasing in-house, we have finance and accounting. You know, we do outsource obviously like taxes and, you know, bigger accounting projects. Uh, we have legal in-house now still using third-party legal in certain situations, but, um, you know, as much of the core that we can control, we've built the company around doing that. And again, we only do our own properties and our, and which are all Walmart shadow centers. So we don't do third party for anybody else. And this all goes into kind of this asset class is the foundation of, you know, the next 30 plus years of what this company will do. So really getting the operations and the systems right to make this as successful as possible is not only to make the execution today as good as it can be, but also as we continue to scale more and more and more efficient. I saw another similarity there between what you guys do and what we do. So we're vertically integrated, just like you are. And uh, we have all of our property management in-house and we don't do third-party management for anyone else. And one of the reasons for that is I really feel like it's our competitive advantage the way we operate. And we also don't want to be distracted by trying to run the operations for other people. So um, for on your end, if we're talking for us, apartment operations are a little more hands-on, I would say. So we're hitting every community, you know, if not daily, multiple times a week. How often is an MRP employee maybe hitting every property on average? On average in a year, it's, you know, it's at least two to three times. And that's a combination of leasing, going out there and doing, you know, they'll go on three, four day kind of uh, tours and go see 12 properties and, you know, do door knocking, all that kind of stuff. Property management alongside construction as well. And so if it's, um, you know, going because there's a specific project or whatever there may be, like um, there's always a reason that somebody's going out there. And so at a minimum, that's kind of happening no matter what. And that anybody that goes out to one of our properties, even if I or my partner showed up one day because we're it's on the way to it, somewhere else we're traveling or we want to go there for some sort of reason, you know, we have like a checklist of anybody that goes there, make sure you check, take pictures of this, that, and the other, and that sort of thing. And so everybody kind of, if somebody's there, we're getting the right information. But another part of, you know, something we can talk about more though is kind of the efficiencies that come with scale and how do you start optimizing that and the right technologies that allow you to even do this more effectively because we still are unique. And, and again, you share in some of the similarities too of, but we're managing properties in small towns across 27 states right now. And so each individual property on itself is inefficient to have kind of third parties doing anything. And it was a lot harder when we were smaller 
today it's a lot easier to start implementing either technologies or other kind of third parties. And so like we have national roofer that goes and makes sure they do roof checks every year and they replace our roofs when they need to be replaced. Um, You know, we've leveraged third parties to even manage the consistency of hiring the day porters and the landscapers and all that kind of stuff. And just certain technologies, one that we implemented recently called ID plans or uh, RPM remote property management is just a huge game changer for us because it's every single one of our properties now is this, this view of all the moving pieces. So like where every single HVAC is exactly where, what brand it is, the serial number, when it was built I mean, when it was manufactured to the gas lines, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's incredible. And so it's even makes, even if it's not our person physically going there, if we're having somebody else go there for some other reason or to do an inspection that we're not doing or something like that, the more efficient we get with that sort of thing makes even them more efficient. And it's a lot of really fun stuff to start implementing. But, uh, you know, it's it's always kind of a catch-22 because you want to be there as much as possible, but you also need to know how to be as efficient as possible and what you're really trying to accomplish at the end of the day. And for us, that's making sure that our core team is managing these properties and the and any third party or service that we're using as efficiently as possible. So even whoever's there is getting us the information that we need no matter what. I love it. I, I made a note of RPM, Remote Property Manager, because that sounds super cool. I've never heard of it. I'm going to look that one up. Uh, sometimes I feel like, uh, you know, people can get software fatigue if you implement too many different types of software in your mm-hmm. organization. For sure. <laughs> How do you guys make that decision, you and your partner, or is it you and your leadership team? How do you decide, like, hey, we need this tool and, and it's worth the effort of implementing it? That's uh, a question that is always a topic of conversation, you know, and we've made all the mistakes of implementing too much too fast, doing an implementation and not getting everybody fully on board. And all of a sudden, six months later, half the people are using it, half the people aren't. So some of the information isn't as trusted. And so I've learned to, as much as you need to be consistently looking at new ways of doing things and adding pieces of technology at the same time, you got to find the right balance of making sure you're utilizing the core things as much as possible. You know, the old saying of garbage in, garbage out, and making sure that that's, you know, down to a T. And the more that we let our leadership team and even just anybody in the company have input and come together to kind of figure out what's really important, RPM is a great example of that, of, Several people for a long time kept pushing it and coming back with it and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, that got that through and it was a huge one. At the same time, we've, we've put in a bunch of stuff that we're now kind of layering back because it was too much and trying to make a bunch of different widgets work together doesn't always work, right? And so it's now it's kind of finding that healthy balance of not doing too many implementations but making sure that we're also on the forefront of what is out there and, and the time that we do focus on new technologies and systems is, is going to be worth it. That makes sense. So at the beginning, I'm sure the focus was just on 
doing deals, trying to grow the company, and you were wearing like a million different hats. Today, what's your role look like in the organization? Is it mainly talking to investors, raising capitals, talking to lenders, or is it still evaluating deals, doing all the DD? What's it kind of look like overall? It's a great question. We're definitely much further along than I probably sound. You know, my partner and I have two very different personalities, but also have a very unique alignment, but he's very much, you know, one of those pure natural salespeople and focuses on, you know, what do we need to do in the short term, right? Like we should be selling this property and let's get this deal done and this and that and the other, where a lot of times I'm way more bigger picture structuring the next vehicle or debt or whatever it may be. And so it's always a healthy balance of him coming to me sometimes being like, hey, I know this big vision is really great and everything, but we also need to do some stuff today. (laughs) But uh, from the operations of the company, uh, he and I are still, we're taking a lot of strides right now, actually, and being a little bit more corporate and structured and, you know, what are our actual job descriptions and what does that mean for everybody else? And so high level, my primary independent roles are, are the bigger picture strategy, obviously, when it comes to structuring the next vehicle or restructuring or adding layers into like, you know, new investment classes and that sort of stuff. And like big picture strategy is definitely my strongest suit. And then also the communication on a daily or weekly basis kind of with the leadership team internally on, you know, feedback of what's going on from the owner's perspective and also what their focuses are and trying to keep that communication as balanced as possible so that there is a consistent presence there and also learning more and more how to let go of some of those responsibilities and let people really kind of take more ownership in, in their roles and their responsibilities. And um, as much as I say I'm not a micromanager, which I'm not, I'm also, you know, it's kind of terrifying sometimes to start letting other people do things that you used to do. Even as much as you say you wanted to let go of those things, it's uh, it's also one of the most rewarding things when they actually are able to do it and do it better than you because that's how you go out and hire, right? Hire people that know more about these things than you do are going to be better at it so you can do your highest and best use. And so actually seeing that come together is, is super rewarding. We've come a long way there. But that's essentially kind of my day-to-day, which includes Joe and I both are the ones that will go out and actually raise the money and a lot of times have the relationships with lenders and all that kind of stuff too. But it's every day's different. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I mean, with your growth, I, I can only imagine that your role is evolving every single month or year. You mentioned being primarily responsible for the investment vehicle or, or I guess the way you're structured to allow outside investors to invest in your deals. Why did you make the switch from the fund to the REIT? And also, if someone wanted to invest with MRP today, uh, what would that vehicle look like and how would they go about maybe getting in touch with you guys? Yeah, no, it's a great question. A unique thing about our company compared to a lot of real estate sponsors is, well, obviously we are niche, right? And so again, even though we'll buy things, like I said, anywhere from completely opportunistic to more stabilized, it's all in this really unique box. And at the end of the day, I try to position what we do really as consolidating a fragmented asset class and versus you know, just a real estate investor. And what I mean by that more is we did fund one because we didn't want to keep doing syndications. 
But at the same time, after fund one, we didn't want to start fund two and then start fund three and just have these isolated buckets of this asset class that the sum of the parts are worth way more than being in these isolated vehicles. So, and our goal as a company is not just to be fund managers, right? It's If that was the case, we'd probably have like a triple net fund and this, that, and the other, right? But that's not the end goal. We'll be raising money from investors for a very long time, but it's not just to do it to have 10 funds. So after fund one, you know, we had a family office that was ready to anchor fund two, just right after it and just kind of go through that cycle. But we were thinking we need to find a way to be able to buy things going forward for the extended future into one vehicle and in the perfect world, even consolidate what we already have into one vehicle. And so that kind of started us off on a process of what are the other ways we could do this outside of just doing another fund and just kind of talking to mentors and connections is kind of how we fell into working with uh, our GP partner on the REIT into what we were trying to accomplish, what they felt like they and other family offices were trying to accomplish. And that ended up becoming a private REIT, which was a lot of the structure modeled off of, you know, the bigger private REITs of the world right now. So like B REIT and S REIT and a lot of differences, but at the same time, the core kind of functionality of it is very similar. And at the time, it was perpetual vehicle. We could raise money as the pipeline needed it. And it was a structure that was easier to start consolidating. And again, the perpetual nature of it allowed us to kind of not have to create another vehicle. I think you always need to be nimble. And obviously, we're in a very different world uh, today than we were in uh, April of 2022 when we launched the REIT. There's a lot of complexities that come with the REIT. And so we're always kind of strategizing on what, how do we continue to adapt to still accomplish what we want to accomplish and what's achievable, both in the capital markets and just on the operational side of things. And so that's kind of always one of the benefits of a structure like the REIT is it leaves you open to be able to kind of add things and change things as you go versus if you have a closed-ended fund, then it's just this is what you're doing no matter what kind of thing. So, you know, we've been digging into a lot of certain ways to just be realistic about what the capital markets look like. And at the end of the day, what we're really trying to accomplish, which is a consolidation of this asset class, continuing to scale it, and then in about five years or so, explore a capital event and that could be anything from an exit to a refinance, right? And uh, But most importantly for us, it's getting it to a certain size that opens us up to a larger pool of potential capital partners or exit partners, where that's why I kind of threw in consolidating a fragmented market, because if we just wanted to go the route of build this big portfolio and sell to a, just another traditional real estate company, it's a pretty limiting exit path. And we just think there's so much more opportunity once you've gotten this to a size that gets the attention of people that write checks of a minimum size, obviously. And also they've never seen, you know, this unique asset class that's in America that's, you know, we've been at that time, five years from now, so we've been doing it for almost 15 years, but also that's still incredibly scalable. 
So right now our, the vehicle that we are continuing to raise money in is, is the Reed vehicle. And that's the primary vehicle that we'll be growing the strategy with going forward. How can someone invest if they if they wanted to invest today or tomorrow? What should they go on your website? Should they uh, maybe just follow you on Twitter or what? What's the the best way for someone to get yeah, to know uh, you and the company? Reach out to uh, you can reach out to me personally. So my my email address I, don't, I can either say it or if it's on the thing, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll add it in there as well. But uh, my email, my cell phone, and uh, you know that's the easiest way to kind of start that conversation. Are you sure about your cell phone? Yeah. Okay. At this point, there's no going back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's very unique. And I think uh, I'm sure people would appreciate that that availability because it's not like you're pointing us towards a general email inbox or like an assistant. So the fact that you're putting your cell phone out there, I think is huge. And I think it really speaks to your character and what you guys are doing. I'd like to end each show with what we call a hole in one. But before we get to that, I do have one more question for you just on the exit strategy. You mentioned a potential refi. My understanding is in retail, you have less debt options available versus multifamily. So would that refi look like a life co or would it be a community bank? Or can you kind of speak to what a potential refi may look like in your world? Yeah, I mean, at, at that scale, it's a larger institution. Ironically, like we've, we have gone back to purely community and regional banks. By the end of this year, we should be done with those refinances which is where we started and we explored some others, but uh, that's how we'll continue to grow. But that final kind of like refinance will be a larger institution for sure. And who knows what the debt markets will look like at that time. But I mentioned that strategy because it's one of the more, it's one of the easiest to underwrite. And even if you just, as long as you believe in our projections and everything, the debt that we have now, and if you increase that you know, NOI, even at a conservative rate, and you refinance back up to a very conservative number, it's the safest underwriting to know that there's an exit there for people. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, is you know, maybe some non-traditional real estate investors that, you know, like the cash flow play or, you know, asset managers or whatever it may be that will also go out and pursue, but in everything in the middle. But the refinance is just one of the easiest to compliment, uh, contemplate and easiest to underwrite and also could be one of the best scenarios that we end up having from a, not like an actionability standpoint, but from a everybody's happy standpoint. Yeah. And if deals make sense with where rates are today, five years from now, I would have to imagine, you know, that, I don't know, I can't really put that out there. I was going to say, I'd have to imagine rates are a little lower than today, but we truly don't know. And I'd hate to be the guy that's putting predictions out there, but let's say if rates are even a hundred basis points lower five years from now, and the deal made sense today, and you had that NOI growth, that's shaping up to be a home run. Yeah, I mean, I think the way we look at it, and I think a very, and it's very different than development or anything else, but anything we underwrite today, we assume it, interest rates are exactly the same. If anything, we'll inflate cap rates somewhat, unless it's obviously we're buying something super undervalued, but um, you can get a return that we're excited about and happy about with all those factors conservatively, then it's something we do all day long. If rates go down, great. If cap rates compressed, even better, right? If we outperform that NOI, even better. But, you know, we truly would own this stuff forever and that's how we look at it. And we just know that with continued scale that it's just going to open up more opportunities for us to explore when the time comes.
That makes sense. And I hate to just keep saying the same thing over and over, but there's some similarities there as well with our company and yours. We look for the refi versus the sale. We don't really have the, you know, the three potential exit strategies at this point, but I 100% agree that the refi is something that more or less you can count on and there's less instability there. So we end each show with what we call a hole in one, which is just your greatest or biggest piece of advice for someone to implement today in their life or business. Would you care to share the hole-in-one uh, coming from the world's largest Walmart <laughs> shadow-anchored retail center owner in small towns. Asterisk. <laughs> People own more real estate next to Walmart than we do, but in our niche. <laughs> uh, you know, that's a great question. I'd have to say, I think, if you could implement one thing right now, the easiest one without me going on a tangent is find more mentors. What you'll get from those mentors is little pieces, whether it's business details into the business life, anything in the middle of that entire spectrum. You know, the more mentors and other people that you talk to, whether they're, you know, more successful and in the sense of having a bigger business or in life or in family or whatever it is, or even just peers, you start to just over time get those little pieces that come back to you like two years later that maybe didn't seem significant at the time. And if you haven't started, start, because you gotta build that network and you have to have a consistency in, that, in those conversations. And again, that's why in the long term, you start taking pieces from all those different people you've talked to or still talk to, and they start applying to what you're doing on a day-to-day basis. But you couldn't start soon enough. That's a great piece of advice. I think mentorship is so important. Uh, would you mind sharing just where you get in touch with some of your mentors? Is it through organizations or just cold emailing people or, or just through personal connections? All the above. I mean, uh, I've had formal mentor relationships set up through uh, EO and their relationship with YPO. Two of the best mentors I could ever have asked for. People in the industry that I just emailed eight years ago, you know, and then they just keep following the journey. Potential investors that have been potential investors for eight years, you know, that still haven't invested, but they're big family offices or they have other real estate companies. And, you know, that's where it's, you know, mentor could be somebody you meet every month. It could be somebody you talk to every year, but it's kind of just putting yourself out there too. And when you truly go out with just wanting to learn and have a conversation and not expecting anything out of it, that's when people are most willing to be open and vulnerable with you as well. And so I think whether it's a cold call or a mutual relationship or a formal mentorship program through an organization, it's just putting yourself out there to even have those opportunities and then being consistent with it. I think a part of you putting yourself out there now on some social media like Twitter and even a podcast like this is going to help people find you as a mentor without maybe even directly ever speaking to you because you're putting valuable information out there. This conversation was extremely valuable. And uh, with the internet today, do you think, or would you agree that you can have mentors that maybe you don't even know that you're there or that they're your mentor? That's an interesting way to put it. I think absolutely. I think like me being on Twitter and doing podcasts is an example of me trying to turn something that I would have thought is a vulnerability and a weakness into a strength. Never thought I would have a Twitter account or anything like that, but I do think 
using Twitter as a way to just even tell your story and try to find genuine connections and relationships through that, I do think is, you know, an outcome of that, especially as I've, I've noticed there's a lot of people out there that even just say, I'm in college and I want to learn more about real estate and that's what I want to do. And so through that, obviously they're learning from everybody who's out there doing it. But I will share a, an example though of uh, the reverse effect of like kind of what you're talking about. And there's a, uh, a guy I know, he's a few years younger than me and they started a business about a year ago and he reached out to me and we got coffee and now we talk or get coffee every couple months. And I'm just as excited to help him and see him succeed because he's doing all the right things and doing it the right way. And he's more successful than he realizes. And even just putting myself in that side makes me even more comfortable trying to find more of my own mentors because I'm starting to learn how it feels to be a mentor to somebody, which is weird to say out loud, but because I don't think about it that way. But at the same time, it's like you want to help other people that are also trying to figure it out and doing it in the right ways and are genuine about it. And so it's kind of just this symbiotic relationship with everyone's really just, when you find the right people, your core group people, I kind of describe it as people who get it. That's how I categorize people. But people who get it are just like authentic, genuine normal people that are out there just trying to grow and do the right thing and learn from others and humble and figuring out as they go. And I think the more you can find those types of people that are just starting out or been doing it for 40 years, it's, it's kind of how you, you yourself grow as a person, but it all takes effort. Thank you for sharing that. And Jordan, thanks for your time. I learned a lot. I hope the viewers, listeners learned a lot as well. Is there anything else you'd like to add or is your cell phone number enough? <laughs> my, my cell phone and email is plenty. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing I want to do is now spend an hour talking to you about your side of the business. Would love to do it. <laughs> Thanks, Jordan. Thank Appreciate you. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. If you're a high quality company, interested in reaching the high-performing audience of Country Club Conversations, let's see how we can work together. To explore sponsorship opportunities, email advertising at storyboardliving.com. That's advertising at storyboardliving.com.